We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. So this lesson definitely in the manual sounded a lot like he wanted us to consider what do we do to participate and to build the kingdom. I thought it was interesting that the word not in condemnation. Hmm. And I'm curious in the history, I don't know if you, I, I didn't look too much into the history of this, but were they inquiring of the Lord because they felt that they had neglected something or was the Lord saying I'm about to give you some new direction don't feel bad that you've done anything wrong here it is or you think you or it was maybe a corrective where you think that you were doing the right thing but I want you to build a church in this manner I don't know I was just a thought I had um, so the only thing like in the Revelations in Context book, the only thing it really says about it is that um, it was revelation that was given around April 6th, 1830, addressed to Joseph Smith's family members or close associates. All five texts include similar content and phrasing, and Joseph Smith likely dictated them one after the other. John Whitmer recorded them separately in Revelation book one and assigned the date AD 1830 to each one. So it more talks about like where, like the date and when it happened than exactly why it happened and why it was saying all this stuff. Basically, I think they were just kind of saying, okay, now that the church has been established, has our, has the expectation of us changed? Like what are, what should we be doing now? And I think it's kind of the Lord saying, okay, uh, basically stay the course, you know? Your, your call is to strengthen the church. Your call is to exhort people to and to strengthen the church. And that's what you're going to be doing forever. Um, to Joseph Knight, he says something like, uh, you must take up your cross in the which you must pray vocally before the world as well as in secret and your family and among your friends in all places. And give your language to exhortation continually. So it's kind of like there there's a little bit of variation between them, but for the most part, it seems kind of like, hey, be a strength, be a be a found foundational member of the church and help bring other people to it. I didn't I didn't really have a ton of notes about section twenty three because of that, because it was kind of just like just keep doing it, you know. <laughs> yeah, that that's why I was curious about whether it was whether they they were seeking this or the Lord was correcting or instructing them. You know, it's, exhortation. It's funny <laughs> that I always think about it as like righteous correction or something. 
but it's actually to encourage is probably the more common yeah. term to encourage encourage others i and they kind of made me think of like my mission president he would always say like 90 percent of his job is to motivate to to motivate the missionaries not that they're unmotivatable but you know but you know what i mean like to yeah to motivate to help them remember and i think maybe that's the role of any leader to keep the end in sight this is the objective let's stay the course let's how do our actions and our behavior build the overall mission of the church maybe that's the beginnings on how to be united you know yeah not only that but i mean they just barely established the church and i think it's a natural point to be like okay we got to this checkpoint now what now what what should we be doing and i think the lord kind of saying you need to be encouraging to others you need to stay as faithful as you can so that you bring other people to the gospel and, and continue to grow the church strengthen it and all of that and i thought it was interesting he even says you know to samuel thou art not yet not as yet called to preach before the world so don't worry about doing a lot of preaching to the world yet uh, strengthen where you are for right now and that's really kind of what the church needed was a, a strong foundation and a good establishment to have a foothold it, it very easily could have fallen apart if it were left to people you know wanting to push out beyond you know oh it's time for me to go back to my to england or something to be a missionary it wasn't time yet it wasn't time to do that yet we need to really establish ourselves first I think one of the things for me that is unique about the restored church in comparison to other churches of their time is that in this in this church every member has a role or a calling or a something that they can contribute that is viewed as just as important as there there doesn't seem to be like a, a hierarchical type of um structure uh the only one that exists that way is priesthood keys you know and revelation has to flow a certain way but as far as like if if you are just a faithful deacon passing the sacrament your action is equally pleasing to the lord as like the brethren working on getting new temples somewhere and and i think you know in those areas in the in that time you You'd go to church. It was kind of they were they were kind of the leaders were kind of that was their profession that was their job. And and it's and we're gonna see that that the Lord's gonna get into well how do you if you're if you're devoted to preaching full time how are you sustained? Are you sustained by your needs or are you kind of sustained by you're getting paid to do this task? Which, which is different. I mean, we we don't have paid clergy, and there are there aren't like for example, there are certain schools where you can go to become a priest. You know. Yeah, like divinity school. And 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 those kind of things. And here it's almost all self-taught through the scriptures, or or called by the Lord, and He calls individuals who are not complete. But then through the process, they become more complete. You know, they become better at. I don't know if that makes sense what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think that especially early on in these 
first days of the organized church, I think the Lord's looking at it as, yes, eventually we will be doing a lot of growth. But right now we all need to become familiar with the gospel first. We need to really strengthen ourselves, strengthen those around us. There's going to be a lot of opposition, especially at this point. And I mean, the, the next couple sections talk about how they face direct opposition to even the very beginnings of the church. And we needed to have a strong foundation in order to overcome that because it very easily could have been, oh, gosh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take the easy road. I'm going to go back to what I was doing before, you know, and the Lord's just saying, hey, stay with it. Stay with it. And I think that was really the message that those men needed to hear at that time. And, you know, it goes into Section 24. This took place two months after the organization of the church. And Joseph Smith uh, was baptizing people in Manchester, Fayette, and Colesville. And that included his own wife, Emma, who was baptized in Colesville. But they faced a lot of opposition because they had built a dam uh, to have a baptismal area. And that had been destroyed by the people uh, in the area because they didn't want them to be baptizing people. Joseph Smith had been held uh, in custody for being a disorderly person for preaching about the Book of Mormon. And even though he was released both times, like it was clear that there was some real opposition to what they were doing. They tried to go back and convert, confirm the newly baptized converts, but they were rejected by a mob. They had to turn them back and and run away. Uh, So... You know, in section 24, they're, they're told to remember to fulfill their callings as a prophet, seer, and revelator for Joseph and a second elder for Oliver Cowdery. And uh, or basically using a lot of the same language that he used, uh, that the Lord used when he called the apostles. And I don't think they were forgetting that, but he was just kind of saying, you know, like this, this does need to get done and you need to stay with it. And you're going to be facing a lot of opposition. I think this is really the first time, I mean, obviously he was being persecuted. It was people threatening him with uh, stealing the plates and threatening him for being a rabble rouser type. But I think this is the first time that you're seeing a concentrated effort by a community to oppose them. Uh, and that's that doesn't stop then, that's for sure. So, so for me, I, I thought it was really interesting how, like you mentioned, they... They are now under more uh, scrutiny by their neighbors because they're now organized. There's more of them. They're starting to move in groups. And in the past, I always I always overlooked this, this fact that when the saints moved into town, they, they affected the economy of that area, area. They affected the politics of the area. You know, and that was very threatening to individuals, let alone their belief that they were not true Christians or false religion or or some sort of cult or something. But then there's the practical things that it affected, you know, the the jobs. They're taking our jobs from us or they come in here with their customs and now they're not drinking at the bar or they're 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 creating their own spinning their own yarn instead of buying some for there or they're too self-sufficient as a group therefore they won't buy our wares or they're creating competitive wares you know what i mean it can get really complicated and 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 very heated you know i i always thought maybe maybe satan riled people up to go persecute the saints 
But I think there's enough in our, well, I think there is definitely some of that, that Satan was opposing the saints. But I think there's also enough everyday things that challenge when a different type of people move in or have a different custom or culture. And these are also saints, we're going to start getting saints, not only saints from America, but saints from Europe that come. Yeah. And they also have different culture, different uh, ways of doing things. And then the saints themselves have to find a way of unifying. Then they try to have, you know, the, the desert alphabet. They try to teach each other. You know, they, they but they figure out how to be one. But then there's still an outcast of, of these other saints. And it's really interesting because in our current climate, we have a lot of concern with other groups of people even from state to state there's don't bring your state's mentality when you're coming to my state or or if especially in a time like now where we've seen voting in certain places being changed and challenged because how can you have that many different thinking people we have always voted this way why did why is the outcome in this you know and it begins to challenge and so when i think about that i can think huh, i can see how the saints were a threat or perceived as a threat where they really did nothing illegal. But within what is legal, people felt threatened and felt and then they took illegal action against them. You know, and I think some I think we should be mindful of that, because I think when we criticize other people's or cultures, sometimes we think, oh, I'm well, we're not doing anything illegal. Yeah. But it's like a lot of what was done to the saints wasn't illegal until it became illegal. And so it's funny how it and we've kind of seen that recently in our country. There was a lot of legal things that people thought, oh, that's kind of disconcerting. You probably shouldn't talk that way or you shouldn't pretend that there's these problems that maybe aren't there or, or whatever. And then that rose up to have illegal consequences. That's where I started thinking about is. You know, they're 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 kind of going to similar things as modern day immigrants would probably feel like nowadays the saints, you know, they're and, and it'll get worse as they get larger and they move to a certain town and then that town doesn't want them there. And, and you start to question some of the principles of well, I thought this was a free country. I thought there was freedom. I thought we have freedom of religion and they're going to be challenged on all those cases up to the point where they have to leave the union. And they come back to it later. Uh, it's kind of interesting because we always think that bigotry or, or, you know, we almost always think that those things are exclusive to maybe racial divides or, or ethnic divides. But in this case, it's very much a religious or an ideology divide. Mm -hmm. They looked very similar to themselves. And that was still able to abound. So sometimes we we can just to be mindful that uh, there's more than one way to do things wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I no, I think that that's an interesting parallel because these were all until the until Joseph Smith got the plates and until he started having these visions and and visits from heavenly beings, all these people were just like everyone else around them. And it was that change in we're not going to be part of this group anymore. We're going to be our own thing that really kind of disconcerted a lot of people in the community. It was like, well, what does this mean? And they're they're radical religious people. And how do we 
basically put an end to this. You know, well, let's let's go put him into custody for teaching the Book of Mormon and being disorderly. Okay, well, we can't really keep him. He's not doing anything wrong. You know, there's no legal reason to keep him in custody. Okay, fine. Well, we're gonna disrupt their baptisms and we're gonna make a mob and make sure they can't come and confirm people. And you know, it's like, are which side of that are we on now? When we look at society now, which side are we on now? Are we on the side that's saying, I'm going to stop these people at all costs? Or are we on the side that's kind of like, hey, if I want to be able to live free and choose what I want to do, I have to let other people do the same. Yeah, it's almost as if they they don't want to do anything illegal or they find that they, well, they're trying to do everything within the law. But then they find that the law also protects them. So what we're going to do is we're going to scream what we believe louder than they can to drown them out. And and we have some of that very same tendency nowadays. You know, imagine in our day if there was somebody down the street that was going to move into your ward, but they were not a member. And as members, you got together and say, hey, we should go let them know that, let them know who we are and what kind of people live here. And then you do that and they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. We still want to live here anyway. Okay, well, maybe we should have a town hall meeting to, to, you know, pass an amendment to let them know that uh, if you live here, you at least have to contribute to the church we go to, the, the majority, you know, like little things like that. And once the little things start not working, then it tends to intensify. Why don't we uh, make sure our kids at school, let them know, you know, that what uh, my, that my parents think of them, you know, and, and, you know, and, you, and then before you know, you got tar and feathering, you got these pitchfork and trying to burn some of the the place is down. It, it's, it's, it, it's, it's almost born It's completely motivated by fear. Yeah. Not understanding and not knowing, right? I'm sure that if any of those people back then had actually sat down and talked to Joseph Smith about trying to do what are your goals, what are you trying to accomplish with this? And he's like, look, I'm just following revelations. And really, we're just trying to uh, follow the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's revealed to us and as it's presented in the scriptures. People would probably be like, okay, well, that's not horrible. But because it's different and because it's growing fast and because they don't really understand what it is, the reaction is to, we got to make this stop. This can't happen here. Yeah. It's threatening our way of life. <laughs> well, so yeah, we it's it's that fear that your way of doing things will change or your life will be impacted. And so in it's almost like a like a virtuous way you're trying to in order to preserve what i have and protect my family i'm going to harm yours you know it, it, not to you know that sounds horrible but but it's we use almost one virtue to 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 mask our unvirtuous behavior right uh there's a a talk i can't remember what it's called but it's by um uh, jokes on the subject of public discourse, we should follow all follow the gospel teachings to love our neighbor and avoid contention. Followers of Christ should be examples of civility. We should love all people, be good listeners, and show concern for their sincere beliefs. Though we may disagree, we should not be disagreeable. Our stands and communications on controversial topics should not be contentious. We should be wise in explaining and pursuing our positions and exercising our influence. In doing so, we ask that others not be offended by our sincere religious beliefs and the free exercise of our religion. We encourage all of us to practice the Savior's golden rule. Whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so 
to them. When our positions do not prevail, we should accept unfavorable results graciously and practice civility with our adversaries. In any event, we should be persons of goodwill toward all, rejecting persecution of any kinds, including persecution based on race, ethnicity, religious belief or non-belief, and differences in sexual orientation. His point is this. If we want to be afforded freedom and protection, we need to do the same to others. And all of that under the principle of we're all children of God. We're all entitled to have our agency and to live our agency. And so if we want our way of life to be protected and to be respected, we have to afford others that same privilege. Even if it's completely different than us, even if it's something we don't like, don't agree with, don't support, it doesn't mean we have to go and pick up their banner and run with it. But it, what it means is we have to allow them to have a banner if they so choose, just like we have our ensign on a mountain, right? Uh, that, that to me is so incredibly fair. And that to me shows that the gospel is uh, equal for everyone. You have the right to your agency. And if you choose to use that agency in a way that is opposite for me, that's your right. That's your, that is your right as a child of God, you know? I, I don't agree with it. I don't have to support it, but I definitely shouldn't just try and quench it. It's also interesting because even with, like you mentioned, that respect that we should have towards each other and towards people that don't feel and think the way we do, we still have missionary work. We're still called to exhort, yeah. to 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 teach, to to go find, you know, to share, to to try to cry repentance in this way. But it's the way we do it, and it's and to do things the way the Savior does them. I think about him as like he he continuously calls prophets, and all the prophets taught about him. And I guarantee he was super involved in all those dispensations, right? But the most important thing he had to do was to get to know everyone personally, and that was the atonement, you know? He did that himself. That was the one thing he couldn't delegate. And so I think about that because I say the one thing that we can, if we're going to follow the Savior, the one thing we can do for someone else that we cannot delegate, that we cannot generalize, that we cannot allow past experience to control for us, is we get to know someone else ourselves. And if you know, in the, the greatest example, we have the Savior who got to know everyone individually. And not just that, but go through whatever they went through so he could what better sucker his people, so he can better understand them, so he can be a better teacher, so he can know exactly what you need to heal you. And it's almost like it's almost like if a child, when, when a child is hurt, it's so hard because you're trying to figure out, does your stomach hurt? Does it hurt when you do this? And they have like a limited ability to feel. How would you, if a parent, for five seconds, you could feel exactly what they feel and you would know exactly what's wrong so you know how to treat them? You know, you would do that as a parent because you, you would be like, what is going on? And so you have to kind of troubleshoot and do the best you can. But that's what we're asked to do and to all the people around us that we can come in contact, get to know them. So we know how to present the gospel to them in the best way possible. So you can look at it, look at it from this perspective. Okay. Look at it from the heavens are, we're never closed. Look at it from the perspective that every person has agency 
and agency is an integral part to the experience we have. Look at it to this perspective that death is in the end. You know, whatever method, that's how the gospel is all encompassing. But we cannot learn to be a master of timing and teaching like our master is if we don't do the one step that comes before everything else is get to know the person. What are they feeling? Not just automatically start dismissing, well, your stomach shouldn't hurt you. <laughs> That's your fault. You should. You ate too many jelly beans. You know, <laughs> how many times, how effective would we be at teaching that child not to do something if all we do is just tell? You know, I'm just going to tell you the right answer, not I'm going to guide you through learning what the right answer is. Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to jump section 25 because section 24 and 26 are kind of more correlated and then we can go back um in in the revelations in context book it has a section towards the end of that of that um that is about section 26 and it says this revelation led joseph and emma to understand that they would struggle financially and need to rely on support from church members because of their dedication to the ministry whatever emma's hopes for her married life were she could hardly have anticipated the degree to which opponents of the new church would physically intimidate and legally harass the Smiths or the way the demands of preaching and church administration would take her husband away from their farm and family, disrupting their home life and threatening their livelihood. I think we get caught up a lot of times, and we've said this multiple times, I think, on this podcast. We get caught up a lot of times in thinking that if we obey the commandments, that all of our blessings uh, will make our life perfect. Or that if our life isn't perfect, it's because someone is doing something wrong. You know, if we're going through trials or if we're going through burdens of the world, that it's either our fault or someone's fault or what what they're being told here is. You're going to have trials to the point where your your need to take care of the church is going to supersede your ability to take care of your farm. You're going to have to rely on other people to do that for you because I need you to be taking care of the church. And I really, I don't know. The Lord tells them that in their efforts to move the church forward, they're going to face trials, hardships, and we know that eventually death. Are we strong enough to continue even despite this? Or are we going to assume that our life isn't perfect because of that? Are we going to assume that we, through perfect obedience, can have a perfect life? Every disciple of Christ is going to go through hardship. Every disciple of Christ is going to go through opposition. And we should be prepared for that and understand, just like he was basically telling them, uh, this isn't going to be easy. And because you're doing this, it may be harder. Um, there are certain situations, maybe, I don't know. If your entire family are members of the church, it might be a little bit easier to live the gospel and not feel direct opposition all the time. But there are lots of people out there that just because they're members of the church, they have a lot more hardship than if they were to no longer belong to the church or to stop going. They could have a much easier life if they would just say, okay, fine, you're right. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to go back to what I did before. You know, go back to my old friends, go back to my old church or, or whatever and, and live a different life. And you would think that by joining the true church and by living it, the gospel as closely as you can, all your problems would go away. But that's not what the Lord's saying. The Lord is saying, endure this. You can do it. I'm here to help. It's worth it. 
and that's that's hard to hear i think sometimes <laughs> because we we want to we want to be comforted in knowing you know keep my commandments you shall prosper in the land but it doesn't happen like that all day every day sometimes it is hard it's funny how in verse 24 verse 1 and 2 is kind of funny <laughs> not, well maybe not funny. Behold, I was called and chosen to write the Book of Mormon into my ministry, and I have lifted thee up out of thine affliction, and have counseled thee, and thou hast been delivered from all thine enemies, and thou hast been delivered from the power of Satan and from darkness. Nevertheless, thou art not excusable in thy transgression. Nevertheless, go thy way and sin no more. So, like, I don't know. I just kind of read that as, hey, once again, not once again. That sounds really bad. So I fixed all the problems. Um, everything is okay. Do better. But uh, <laughs> there's no excuse for the problem you created, kind of like <laughs> in your transgression. You know? And it's it's kind of like, I don't know, there, there are certain there's problems or trials that occur because of the nature of the fact that we're in a fallen world. We're subject to agency in a certain amount of chaos in this experience. All of those experiences, we can take something to learn from or not. They can either move us closer to the Savior or they can make us bitter and move us further away. The problem with moving further away is that you are you slowly begin to erode the principles that will help you to avoid problems of our own agency and then once we have the random problems of a fallen world the mixing with the problems of our own agency we truly are then tempted to take even like out of satan's problems of sins and other further transgressions and ones that are meant to strip us of our agency altogether like you mentioned before we just because we have a good desire or we're doing the right thing doesn't mean we don't face problems. And and so I ask myself, then how can we be happy? How is man that uh, that man may may can be or Adam fell that man may be and man are that they may have joy? How are we to be in that place? You know, and I think the way I view it is, our this experience is meant to be a wide. Uh, sampling or we're supposed to go through a lot of different experiences and just as when we read in genesis how could we know happiness if we did not know misery how could we you know and then second nephi lehi kind of expands on that how can how can we choose good if we're not enticed by bad how can you know and and that's and it's difficult i mean no one enjoys their trials as as much as they enjoy when good things happen you know but i can tell you that without the contrast it's hard to enjoy life if every day we're eating ice cream we won't value ice cream you have to eat broccoli <laughs> you have to you have to taste the other things in life and and just like what we would counsel our children is you know you can't just come home from school and play you have to do your chores. You have to do your homework. And then when you play, it's that much more enjoyable. There's something to that in, in all of our lives. You know. Yeah, he's the Lord speaking to Joseph in verse 3 of, of section 24, saying, magnify thine office. And 
I think what he's telling him is it's time to you've been being you've been a really good servant answering when I when I tell you to do things and you've been fulfilling different things but now it's time to really become a leader of people now it's time to shift from just being a fellow servant and and following whatever commandments you get from whatever angel shows up uh, or asking questions about things you read now that there's going to be a lot more members joining you need to magnify your office. You need to really take ownership of this calling as prophet, seer, and revelator. Not that you haven't before, but now is the time to really expand on that and become a leader. And at the same time that he's telling him that, he's also telling him that you're going to have trials and hardship and whatever. And I think that's those often go hand in hand. When when we're asked to do more, oftentimes trials arise. You know, you hear about people who they serve a mission. And their family suddenly starts experiencing lots of hardship. And I think it's the, there's two things. It's growing, uh, opportunities for growth and spiritual development. It's also, sometimes it's Satan messing with people and seeing how committed are you to this? Or can I shake you? You know, can I make you backtrack? Can I make you give up? And when, when we don't, we can experience a, a lot of spiritual growth. Uh, one of the things that my mother-in-law always points out is how every time one of her kids went to serve a mission, uh, my father-in-law was laid off almost like clockwork, like every single time. And it was kind of a way of saying, okay, do you have the faith to carry on or are you going to be shaken? This kind of thing happens all the time. And it, and it will always happen when we have desires to do good things and more is required of us. Um, even small things become bigger challenges. And do we have the wherewithal to endure them? Uh, I think that that's, that's kind of a lesson that I got from those two sections. Yeah, well, we talked a little bit about this last time, about when when people are called and, and what does a sustaining vote, vote mean. Yeah. But in this section, they really call it out as what is common consent. And then there's a really nice quote by President Hinckley that says, the procedure of sustaining is much more than a ritualistic raising of the hand. It is a commitment to uphold, support, and assist those who have been selected. And I think we, we touched on that a little bit last episode mm-hmm. about when we sustain, it isn't just a passive notion, you know. That we're saying we're going to help that individual be successful, and we're going to help them help us. And, you know, just as in the church you need a leader, you also need people to lead, uh, that need to be led and as you as much as you need a teacher you need a student as much as you need a service project you need uh something that needs to be fixed and it's i don't know i i really like it i think it stresses it's a commitment to be united uh oftentimes i think groups of people when the going gets hard the, sometimes we want to leave each other. We've seen it in, you know, societies, different things, but but also in religious congregations, and that's kind of what started this. When when Joseph Smith looked upon all these different religious congregations, because at some point someone disagreed with someone and said, you know what, I'm going to go start my own congregation. We're going to go do our own thing, and. Maybe it is all born out of a good desire, and a lot of it we do know that the the whole revival and the whole um, 
religious upheaval of the era was driven out of a good sense of people searching for the truth. But oftentimes, even good intention people can be led to have strong disagreements and not be united. And I, I just view always as we sustain individuals, it's us committing that we're in this together. We're going to be united. And whatever problems or issues arise, we're committed to resolving them, not abandoning each other along the way. So let's go back to section 25. And in Joseph Smith's Revelations book, um, it says, by July 1830, Joseph Smith had dictated almost 30 revelations for individuals or small groups. But no women were known to have been included among the recipients. This revelation reflected the vital role that Emma Smith played in Joseph Smith's life and also foreshadowed a larger role for her in his work. In this, in his work. The revelation called her an elect lady and charged her to comfort Joseph Smith in his afflictions, select hymns for the church, preach to church members, and write for Joseph Smith so that Oliver Cowdery could serve elsewhere. When Whitmer copied this text into Revelation Book 1, he described it as a commandment to Emma Smith to select hymns. In 1835, she, along with William W. Phelps, compiled the church's first hymnal, a collection of sacred hymns for the Church of the Latter-day Saints. One of the few church publications at the time and a book that played an important part in the church's worship practices. The Revelation also explained to Emma, Thou shalt be ordained under his hand to expound scripture and exhort the church. When the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo was founded in 1842 and the members of members selected Emma as the president, Joseph Smith read this revelation to those who were present and explained that Emma had been ordained at the time the revelation was given to expound the scriptures to all and to teach the female part of the community. I find this really interesting because this was, a, honestly, this was a time when the the involvement in women in community in an official way wasn't super common it was kind of like you just support your husband that's all you should do and she was prompted to do that right support uphold him in his afflictions uh, but it wasn't just that it was also here's the things i want you to do uh, and the hymns part was probably one of the more enduring things that along with her her teaching the scriptures and stuff, especially when Relief Society was formed later. But um, also in the Revelations in Context uh, book, it says, the revelation regarding Emma Smith received during the tumultuous summer months of 1830 was invoked and discussed in Relief Society meetings throughout the 19th century. For example, at a jubilee celebration of the Relief Society's 50th anniversary in 1892, held in the Salt Lake Tabernacle, Zina Y.W. Card, read in a very clear and distinct voice the revelation given to Emma Smith through Joseph the Seer, wherein Sister Emma is called an elect lady. Early Relief Society general presidents were sometimes called elect lady. For instance, for instance when Zina D.H. Young became Relief Society general president, Emmeline B. Wells, who herself later served as Relief Society general president, wrote to her, I congratulate you, my beloved sister, on being called to be, according to the words of Joseph the prophet, the elect lady. So, it was almost like a, a title that was passed down for a while. And I think, what does that mean, elect lady? She did a lot of different things. I think the hymn book thing was very important. I think it, uh, in many ways, compelled um, some of the saints in the early movement across the plains. We have countless stories of, you know, when things were really hard, that they would sing hymns to kind of lift each other's spirits. And that was so incredibly necessary at that time. Um, music does that. It is 
a spiritual experience to uplift sometimes. And it can do the opposite too. Uh, it, it has this special power over us. And for her to have that assignment, uh, I think was really important. Yeah, I, I really like that that section because it, most of them are not from Latter-day Saints. You know, yeah. most of them were hymns of the of the time that that, uh, you know, under how she curated them. And and later on, there were saint composers and, and other people. Um, but but it's interesting. I, I I find sometimes I look at other congregations and their meetings and they're singing, you know, another song that for us, we think, oh, that's our song, but it's not. And and it. I don't know. It's kind of nice. It goes to show that there are good people, inspired people in all uh, places and times, you know, and that the Lord will respect and honor their contribution that that, you know, these these the prayer, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me type of thing. You know, in 2018, the church announced that they were going to have a project to compile and publish a new hymn book. And. This is still ongoing. I think they've gotten uh, completely overwhelmed <laughs> by submissions because one of them was that you could submit original work. The, the section from the church website on the announcement, it says, We recognize the power that Sacred Hymns has to unify the members of the church throughout the world, said Elder Ronald A. Rasband of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We desire to offer a constant core collection of hymns and songs in every language that reflects the diverse needs of the global church in our day. This core collection means that members of the church, no matter where they live in the world, will have the same hymns and the same songs and the same hymn numbers, said Elder Eric W. Kapitschke, a General Authority 70 and an advisor to the Revision Project. We will literally be singing on the, from the same page in every language. Currently, hymn books and hymn numbers vary widely, which is inconvenient for multicultural wards and branches or for visitors who speak a different language. Elder Kapitschke also explained that in the past, English hymns were typically selected and then translated into other languages. We hope that these new books will also include some of the best hymns and songs originating in other languages that will then be translated into English in other languages of the world. I think that's awesome. I think that is so dang cool. Uh, there's a there's a few songs in Spanish that don't exist in English, and they're really good ones too. And I'm like, wow, that you know, there's a lot that we're missing out on. And obviously, there's way more in English than than we have in Spanish, but I think it's going to be good that we kind of have like consistency across the board, same hymn number. We don't have to have the, I had the, the cheat sheet on the beginning of my mission kind of saying, this is what hymn is on this page. And so that I would know which one it was, but I'm glad that, that they're doing that. Uh, some of the first songs I knew by heart growing up were, were primary songs, you know, and hymns. And I think that there are moments, um, when a hymn is exactly what you need, when you're in a dark place or when you need to feel faith and feel some hope and the words of a hymn can really kind of push you there. And uh, I think that's really awesome. A lot of these hymns are also very Utah pioneer centric. And while I think a lot of those will remain because they're a part of our, our legacy as a church, I think the idea of kind of branching out into more inclusive or, or more involving of different uh, cultures in our hymns is going to be really cool. When we think about the millennium and, and the second coming and everything that should happen, we we like thinking about those prophecies of the 
the gathering of the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, they're, they're all going to be gathered, the lost tribes will be found, you know, and that we will find that they will bring their records and their content. And I think about how if we learn as 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 the restoration unfolds, it was it's not a restoration of America. It's a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will find in time that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story of all its people, you know, all throughout the world. And as we come at different hours and, and missionary work progresses, it, it starts here and it moves there and then now it's international. And then, you know, there's more members outside of the U.S. than inside of the U.S. now. We will have to get comfortable with the fact that we now have faith-promoting experiences and stories that are unique to certain people in certain places. And just as we value ours, they value theirs. And just as, you know, it be it would be foolish for us to take an attitude of we have a, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible. In this sense, when the Lord continues to reveal more and ask for his saints around the world to share more of their experiences with the saints that that are here and, and vice versa, right? Well, I think that there probably are some people um, that are kind of like, I don't want the hymn book to change. We're going to lose hymns that I like. I've had moments when we sing a hymn in Sacramento and I've literally never heard that hymn before. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't know the words. I don't know the tune. You know, I'm okay with that one not being in it anymore. You know, <laughs> Uh, it doesn't really, I don't have any affinity for it, but I think that, you know, those, those people who don't want to see the change, it's only been that way since 1985. We had another hymn book before that. This one will still be available online. And this isn't by any means the first time we've had a change to our official hymn book. We've had, uh, several changes since Emma created the first one we've added and we've taken away. And one of the LDS favorite hymns come thou fount is not in our current hymn book and it was in the previous one so you know we're going to have ones that won't be in the new one but people still like that hymn people still play it people still sing it it's still available like I think what it is is it's a way of standardizing across the board it's a way of saying if we're going to keep an organized church if we're going to be so clear that this is the church of everyone Let's let's start there, too. That was so, so important in the early church that the Lord asked Emma to make a hymn book. Yeah. It's not just a nice thing to have. It's it's a necessity. Yeah, it's funny because it's very similar to when the temple ceremonies were standardized um, and and there was slight changes and a lot of changes from the live ceremonies to the recorded ones and then from English to they standardized the text, and I think President Hinckley was one of the main ones that helped when he was in the 12. I think it was one of his assignments, and it was mostly done so they could then translate it, you know, so there could be consistency. And there, there was some individuals who preferred the old style and, and did not really like the new style of doing things. But we also have to look at it from a, a perspective that the brethren, their job is to be the shepherds and to root out any discrepancies and to make sure that the ordinances in particular in the in the sacrament and in, in the in the block schedule and the 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 manuals and the lessons all have the essential gospel principles 
And then as permitted by area, you can have other programs, you can have other things, you can do this, you can do that, but everyone needs a solid foundation, like one vocabulary where we're all kind of speaking the same gospel language. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, if you're one that is on the side where you feel things are being taken away and you're going to miss those things, you're welcome to sing all those hymns or you're welcome to stay at church an extra hour. If you miss the third block, you just, you know, just roam around and join the other word if if that's what's important, you know. But we have to always be mindful that if if we truly believe in this principle of eternal progression, then we really have to start getting comfortable with changes. The last thing uh, about this section really stood out to me was in verse 10. And this is a, a thing that I think should be plastered everywhere. And verily I say unto thee that thou shalt lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better. And to me, that means everything we've been talking about, right? The trials that you might face, the fear of change that you might have, set aside the things of the world and seek for the things of a better. Think about what the end game is. What's the what is the end objective to all of this? It's to reach exaltation. It's to get back to our Heavenly Father again. It's to become like him. And when you think about that, when you have that as your perspective, a lot of these little things even big trials seem like, you know what, this is all part of the bigger plan. Keep in, keep in mind the plan and that it's for everyone. I don't know. That, that verse really stood out to me. And I know it's kind of highlighted in the lesson as well. But I was like, if we have any any slogan, you know, <laughs> that, that's a pretty good one. Set aside, Lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.